Welcome to the Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. As always, you're with Mike. And you're with Ian. Yeah, and we are rereading the Aubrey Matron novels of Patrick O'Brien. Ian, we're almost right at the middle of the Commodore here. Can you catch us up and tell us where we're going? Mike, I can, and with pleasure. We're getting really into the heart of this book, I think. Um, Last time, Jack and Sophie had hosted a dinner for the captains of the squadron that Jack's now commanding. Pullings had confirmed the poor experience that Stephen had had with Captain Thomas of the Thames, and the Admiral, even so, had refused Jack Aubrey's request to have this Captain Thomas replaced. Sir Joseph, meanwhile, had told Stephen about the Duke of Habakstal's intent to have Stephen arrested, to have his fortune seized, and to have Clarissa and Padine sent back to New South Wales. And Sir Joseph had then advised Stephen to take them and his gold and flee the country. Mm. So, lots going on there. This time then, Stephen rides back to the ship deciding what to do. Jack confronts the green-eyed monster, which is a little reference for all you Othello fans out there. There's family time of a kind aboard the Ringle. There's the Doctor's fan club. There's a young Jack in the making and bawdy humour from Hamlet. Mike, I I can't wait to get into all of this. Take us to the start line here. Well, and and we start with horses, which is always a great place for me. Yeah, and an Arab too, just like mine, although mine's you know, a gelding who who is about to be not the happiest in this next paragraph here. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> so Stephen is riding Lala, Diana's Arabian mare, and he's coming back from that meeting where Sir Joseph, you just told us about, Ian, and he's headed for Portsmouth. And he's wondering why he's so nervous, why his mind is in such a silly flutter and just keeps flying off. And he's wondering why in the world now he's left his coca leaves behind. But he remembers there's a nearby apothecary where he's bought laudanum in the past, but then cries, Vare Retro Santanus. Mm. And O'Brien notes that mood is easily conveyed from person to animal and also back the other way and tells us that some of Stephen's mood is coming from the mare who's in heat. She's skipping along. She's dancing sideways, tossing her head. Her mood, O'Brien writes, is most evident to the poor ruthful gelding. Sorry, Khalil, gelding of mine out back. (laughs) To a pretentious jackass who cries out to her and to the one stone horse that is the one stallion that they pass along the way. Stephen reigns in her frisky behavior right at a crossroads with a gallows standing there and realizes this is a really good place for an ambush and wishes he'd brought the revolving pistol that Duhamel, that French intelligence agent, had given to him back a number of books past. Wow. So Stephen's dodging demons of different kinds here, isn't he? Tell us about the the Varde Retro thing, Mike, because that was really fascinating. Yeah. So in, in ecclesiastical Latin, this means sort of go back or go behind Satan. And it's, it's very similar to the Vare Retro Me Santana, which uh, is, is in, you know, Jesus says to Satan in chapter four of Luke. He says it to Peter in Matthew 16 and, and the synoptic verse Mark 8. And this phrasing, which has, you know, a big jump at about 1823, so pretty close to our thing and a high in 1846, is part of a medieval Western Christian exorcism formula, meaning wow. be gone Satan. Yeah. And and the full phrase that if you translate the Latin that's behind that, it says, Begone Satan, never tempt me with your vanities. 
what you offer me is evil. Drink the poison yourself. So a very, a very fitting reference to Stephen thinking about this laudanum here. So it becomes about the time that we're in here in popular usage used to mean a strong rejection of anything that's unacceptable, possibly tempting. And mm. you know, perfect, right? Here we are. Yeah, it's great. Uh, Mike, we're, we're going to talk a lot about themes and about the big ideas in this chapter. I, I can sense the beginning of a big idea here that we might hear more about, which is the idea of temptation. You know, Lala is a temptation for the male horses. Cocaine is tempting Stephen. We, we, we've got jealousy to deal with in this chapter as well, which has its own kind of temptation. So let's just see... Where, where this takes us. And let's see where Lala takes Stephen as well on this dark night where he's wishing he had his pistol. Now, S Stephen pushes Lala forward and then hears a thunder of hooves coming up from behind him. And Mike, I'm already thinking, I, I remember Jack getting thrown off his horse. I remember time passed in the, in the canon where we've had highwaymen and footpads and robbers. I'm thinking already, you know, yet another catastrophe is going to befall one of our principal characters here. But despite Stephen's efforts to push Lala on, she won't go faster. And the text says, the hoofs come closer, closer. They were abreast on either side. A band of foolish, unmounted, ogling, geldings, colts and farm horses from the common, as Lala had obviously known from the beginning. So <laughs> what, what was built up there for a second is real jeopardy for Stephen turned out to be his horse just going, oh, chase me, chase me. Now, Stephen, like the rest of us, I think, is relieved, but decides to stop in Peter's Field and to buy a pair of pocket pistols, which is something better, we think, on his behalf than uh, than a, a dose of laudanum. However, despite wishing this for himself, he's forgotten his money, and he rides on, continuing to contemplate on Duhamel and the agent who had provided the intelligence for Jack's upcoming mission to intercept a French squadron bound for Ireland. And Stephen recalls that their hold over this particular agent had gotten weaker and hopes then that the intelligence is still good. So maybe there's something unreliable. Maybe there's a kind of perception that can't be counted on here. We'll stick a pin in that. Stephen knows how the French love to poison intelligence. And Mike, that reminds me of the get thee behind me, uh, poison yourself thing from just a couple yeah. of paragraphs ago. Excellent, excellent reference there. And he remembers one case where an agent had learned of a French plan to attack a Baltic convoy, but the ships had been sent to the guard. The merchantmen had found themselves surprised, heavily outnumbered, and defeated. And besides sounding like a classic story to be told by somebody who'd worked in intelligence and counterintelligence, which we think O'Brien in some way had, this also sounds again like, like, like temptation and ending up looking foolish when you succumb to the first interpretation of what somebody's telling you. Maybe I think also thinking about squadrons not being uh, well-founded in intelligence and getting defeated and humiliated, maybe that's setting up some jeopardy for our heroes. Maybe the intelligence that Jack is going to be following might have been poisoned with some kind of a bad surprise lying in wait for the squadron. All kinds of things going on here. There really are. Well, we know that Jack's been asked to put the squadron to sea in a very short time. And Stephen's thinking about that, but he's thinking, but Jack's well prepared for that. However, Stephen's thinking, Jack seems defenseless in dealing with the jealousy, which currently consumes him. 
And yet Jack seems to be completely blind to this jealousy in Stephen's thoughts. Stephen had watched this build up at Ashgrove Cottage. And unfortunately, you know, Mr. Hinksy continued to visit, often arriving just before Jack was leaving. He's seen changes in Jack's behavior on the Bologna, sudden brusque, imperious tones that his old shipmates don't recognize and a temper that makes his new subordinates uneasy. You know, the uh-huh. guys are like, oh my gosh, you know, we, who are we shipping with here? So uh, Stephen believes all of these feelings of Jack's are unnecessary. And O'Brien writes, Stephen regretted the whole foolish matter extremely, the suffering of the two chiefly concerned, that is Sophie and Jack, and of all those around him, you know, the effect it's having on everybody else, the utter impossibility of playing the kind intervening friend who puts everything right with just a few quiet, understanding words, perhaps conveyed parabolically. And at this juncture, his regret was singularly immediate, a personal, directly interested regret, since he was going to ask a favor that even an uncommonly well-disposed unhurried and benevolent naval commander would hesitate to grant, let alone a man in the throes of readying a squadron for sea with a half-acknowledged monster at the same time devouring him from within. Wow. Don't you love this writing? Oh, my gosh. You know, I'm reminded one reviewer of the Commodore, when it first came out, said that this book even more than post-captain, kind of cements uh, O'Brien as Jane Austen's heir on the domestic front here. Yeah. And you and I were talking about this, Mike. This is a good example of what Paul Breyers, when we yes. spoke to him a couple of weeks ago, was talking about when he talked about the the, the O'Brien voice. If, if you reached for a kind of pastiche or a copy of this, you'd fall way, way short. It's such great writing. And I, I even like this, the phraseology about the half-acknowledged monster is a really good teaser about how this theme of jealousy is going to work out here and uh i have a feeling stephen's already noticing it here i have a feeling that it may be coming to the surface pretty soon in this chapter let's uh, let's see anyhow meanwhile stephen bless him is wet to the skin from the long boat ride out to the bellona the boatman's not pleased by the sight of the thames's bargeman the thames's barge is hooked on alongside the bellona they're tricked out like a parcel of popinjays Great Austin-era word for vain or conceited people. Dressed in the same showy garments like a band of damp Merry Andrews. A Merry Andrew being a word for for clowns, people who entertain by comic antics. And O'Brien used this same term, Merry Andrew, to describe the look of the boatman that, uh, that transported Lord Clonfort around the place back in the Mauritius command. So, with the Thames's barge hooked alongside, Stephen asks the boatman to go around to the larboard side and to call for a small, convenient ladder, which is a very Stephenish way of saying, I don't think I'm going to make it up the side here. The boatman's not amused, but never mind, all is taken care of because all the doctor's friends aboard notice this and they call out, say, don't move, you'll slip in the rain, stay there, and we'll bring you aboard. And Mike, there's this, there's this kind of, uh, trains passing in the night moment here as Stephen is coming on board getting to grips with his new situation aboard the Bologna Captain Thomas is coming out of Jack's cabin and just a few words of description of the mood on Thomas's face and the kind of atmosphere in the cabin tells us what's been going on between Captain Thomas and Commodore Aubrey we hear Jack's strong voice say with deep displeasure that is all I have to say this will not occur again good day to you sir and 
Thomas is walking away and he has his punishment register under his arm. So we have a good clue about what this has been about. Well, you know, Stephen comes in and Jack is worried because, as you say, he's just soaked. And Jack says, you know, here, have a dram. Let's keep the water out. He says, you know, the seawater will do no harm. But as O'Brien writes, the rain is deadly stuff once it gets right in. <laughs> Especially, Jack tells him, the feet, you know, the, feet, the weakest part of the body. Take Achilles' heel. And and then he realizes, oh, Stephen, you know all about the medical stuff. You know all about Achilles, you never mind, you know, and I, I just love Jack with his superstitions and realizing, hey, I'm, I'm giving medical advice to Stephen and I'm trying to speak <laughs> to him about classical matters. Yeah. But I, I really love, you know, his concern for his friend here. Oh, and yeah. Jack's, yeah. His ability to do this 180 degree turnaround emotionally, you know, he's just completely immersed with Thomas and then boom, so happy to see Stephen here. Well, so they each down a tot of rum drawn, as as O'Brien tells us, from the wood in the Trafalgar year. So a really good tot of rum. And Jack says he really needed that because he loathes a steady, indiscriminate flogger. So exactly as you say, and here we know. Yeah. Well, Stephen says he wishes he'd found Jack with a reposed mind because he has a favor to ask him. And Jack says, well, I'm not going to be any better humored tomorrow, so you might as well ask now. <laughs> doesn't sound promising. No, and it really doesn't. Yeah, Stephen says he wishes to borrow the Ringle with a proper crew for a private voyage to London as soon as possible. And Jack looks at him with a piercing stare that O'Brien tells us Stephen has never seen before. He asks Stephen if he realizes that the squadron sails on Wednesday and Stephen says he does, but you know if he can't rejoin him in time, he can he can catch up with him, rendezvous at the groin or at Finisterre. And he adds that it's entirely personal. This need a private emergency calls it. <sighs> you know, yeah, and then and Jack, to his credit, says, you know, I I I kind of understood that. And he says to Stephen, well, you can have her. Tell me how long you need her. And wow. uh, it's fascinating. He's asking Stephen about tides, and Stephen saying, you know, I really didn't think about tides. So. He calls Tom, says the doctor needs the tender. He asks for Bondin and Reed to crew her and as discreet a set of old shipmates as Tom can think of and Vidling with the utmost dispatch for the Burlings in case they can't make the earlier rendezvous points. So, you know, <laughs> God, Jack, thinking ahead. I love this. Yeah, I love it. He's like three-fourths seamanship-wise, he's many, many steps ahead. It's great. Absolutely. Stephen says he's deeply obliged to Jack. And Jack says, as O'Brien writes, there is no such thing as obligation between you and me, brother. And I'm just, boy, <laughs> what a line, right? It's great. It's, it's one of those lines that stays in my memory a lot. I was struggling to place where it was in the canon. I'm so glad to have kind of stumbled upon it here. Great token of, of friendship, of such a, such a solid friendship. It's fantastic. <sighs> well... Jack's going further. We saw him do this 180 turn dealing with Thomas to dealing with Stephen. And I'm thinking, well, that's fine. But Jack's already saying, I'm, I'm sorry. I was actually a little bit chuffed to begin with, as he describes it. And Killick brings along a pot of coffee and they get properly into their conversation. They're waiting for the ringle to come across. And Jack recounts the rough day that he's had with Thomas. And there's certainly jeopardy in prospect for Captain Thomas here. As Jack says, he will end up like Piggott or Corbett if he goes on like this. Food for the less particular fishes. And besides sounding like a bad threat by Tony Soprano, 
This is a <laughs> reference to Hugh Piggott, the captain of the Hermione, whose mutiny we heard all about, uh, and Corbett, the captain presumably murdered by his own crew in the Mauritius campaign. So there's danger there. And he talks, Jack does, about having run into an old friend whose wife had turned out to be six months pregnant when this old friend had returned from two years at sea that very morning. And Jack notes that this friend had never set up, as he says, never set up for chastity any more than I have, often sailing with a miss aboard, and was happy to countenance other officers and midshipmen also having a woman aboard. But Jack said he told his old friend, I can't decently blame the wife for doing what he had done himself. And this friend had said, it's different for women. And we've had this expression trotted out by various characters at various stages in, in the canon, but we get it examined here by Jack and by Stephen. Jack says he didn't choose to tell his friend that that's a scrub's reply, but he does think that it's just cant. That is to say, it's just hypocritical, sanctimonious talk and great nonsense. The act, he says, is the same for both. So, hmm, bit of late 20th century egalitarianism between the sexes there, in, in this moment anyway, from Jack Aubrey. Jack thinks that the only difference is that the woman could, in his words, bring a cuckoo into the nest and cheat the rightful chicks. But in this rather glaringly kind of pragmatic and cold throwaway at the end, he says, well, that can easily be dealt with by leaving the cuckoo out of the will. And Mike, I, I hear theme number two, jealousy coming loud and clear here. And Stephen asks if that's Jack's considered view, this accepting that it's the same for both sexes, that the, 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 the blame and the guilt is the same on both sides, but also saying, well, you can take care of this stuff just by the way you handle your inheritance. And Jack says, yes, fair is fair. And Stephen kind of honours him for the fairness of it. Jack says, you won't be as pleased that I had offered to ask the man in question to give his friend satisfaction, <laughs> meaning challenge the other guy to a duel. And Stephen jumps straight on this. Surely, he says, there's a contradiction here decency i will not say christian charity but at least decency on the one hand and barbarous heathen revenge on the other he's kind of saying you seem to be kind of pope holy with one sentiment and a man of violence at the other end right jack says that both he and stephen had participated in duels stephen can't really therefore speak of barbarous heathen revenge but Jack is certain of both of his feelings, even if they do appear to contradict each other. And he compares it to the idea of a quadratic equation that has two different solutions, both of which can be proved correct. And, and Mike, there's a, there's a very tenuous link here between the, the ethical idea of a, you know, of, of a real dilemma morally and the, the simple mathematical consequences of multiplying you know, negative numbers. <laughs> <laughs> right. It made me think of Blaise Pascal, who said, the heart has reasons which reason knows nothing of. Uh, or, yes. <laughs> you know, our friend Thomas Paine, back from Stephen's days in Paris there, who wrote in the Pennsylvania Magazine in August 1775, women are constrained in the disposal of their goods, robbed of their freedom of will by the laws, and victimized by a pernicious system of double standards. Uh, Mike, we, we're getting really to the heart of some of the, not only the dilemmas, but the paradoxes, the real character meat of what's going on in this situation for Jack and Sophie, and then also for Stephen and Diana. And it's it, it's really there for us to kind of pick apart here. But right from the beginning of the chapter, we've had all these 
In fact, I would say even earlier from the beginning of the book, we had all these really telling bits of symbolism. We have. We had Stephen just at, at the beginning of this chapter. You know, Stephen sort of stops at that gallows and he's thinking to himself that, oh, it's just the main crossroads. So it's chosen for the exhibition of awful examples, meaning, you know, people have done wrong. But he notes that it doesn't seem to have any deterrent effect because it's renewed so regularly that two pairs of ravens come from another town twice a week because there'll be fresh bodies, they know, right? So, you know, we're talking about people and how they keep doing the wrong things here. Jack talks about, you know, this captain forgiving his wife for adultery because he commits it all the time himself, but then also offers to set up a duel with the other man. So Jack's often committed adultery, but we've heard is now, you know, kind of in the throes of this jealousy that perhaps Sophie is interested in this Reverend Hinksy here. There's so many hangings, there's so many duels, but human behavior doesn't change. You know, is this what happens when morality attempts to go up against human or animal nature i don't i don't know wow yeah. Yeah. yeah and we've we've had a few mentions as you said already this chapter of the the connection between human emotion behavior and morality and animal emotion behavior and morality and that's a great thing that o'brien loves to talk about yeah this gallows scene part of also lala being in heat you know and, and available to all these horses that are running after her so there's there's this death and sex thing going on here, which you yeah. know, got me thinking about, you know, the praying mantis and Mrs. Hart. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> we remember that scene here. And in all this mix with conversations about indiscriminate flogging, yeah. um, a captain having sex with the foremost hands that, you know, discipline's going by the board here. Two Shomerstonian Sethian smugglers who are at sea because their wives are so mad about this Sethian revelation, perhaps illusory, that polygamy is now allowed and indeed recommended. You know, it's a little bit more cant, as we say, a little bit more male dominated. But the wives reaction makes to them this man of war look like a haven of peace here. So I, I don't know, in a lot, a lot, a lot going on. <laughs> there is. I, I think you're really onto something with this idea of the connection between death and sex. And we've we've had it before. So much of the symbolism, so much of the story before. This is something that O'Brien wants us to take notice of. I also think there's a, besides the, the jealousy thing that we've got running and the temptation thing that we've got running, I'm, I'm looking back at this whole chapter, I'm thinking, people are kidding themselves. There's some kind of self-deception, sometimes pretty catastrophic there's a cynical side of o'brien as well when it comes to relationships saying there's a there's a, there's a kind of self-deception that you know if you think your partner will always be faithful in brackets Stephen maturin if you think your partner will always be faithful you're kidding yourself and that's something that people have tried discreetly to say to sophie aubrey in the past and that's something that people have said indiscreetly to Stephen many times now this lack of perspective of what's going on in your relationship is a real problem because you're torn between your faithful self, which might be setting up to be duped, and your jealous self, the self that's dominating Jack Aubrey right now, which is going to tear you apart with paranoia. And Mike, it, it strikes me as I'm reading this and thinking about the comparison between Jack and Stephen. Jack has only recently discovered that he has this problem, hence the three o'clock in the morning violin recitals. I think Stephen has had this problem ever since we've known him. And hence, in this conversation that we were just talking about, he's the one who rapidly changes the subject onto more comfortable topics. So 
Stephen, no- noticing the dangerous ground that he's on here, and probably aware of the tie into what Jack thinks might be happening with uh, the Reverend Hinksy, changes the subject, asks about these burnings, these rocks, these islands where they're going to rendezvous, says to Jack, tell me about them, tell me about the flora and fauna. And Jack tells Stephen why they make such a great rendezvous and recollects his time as a midshipman. There were interesting birds and bats. All this, I think, is slightly false, but false in a friendly way conversation that they enabled between themselves to get themselves off this really, really uncomfortable topic. They talk about their last trip to Portugal when they'd heard that Jack's natural son, Sam Panda, had been ordained. And then finally, the the conversation starts to wrap up when Reed comes to report that the tender is hooked alongside. And Stephen, ever the intelligence agent, grabs a considerable sum of money and his coca leaves and his revolving pistols. All all of them get behind me, Satan. (laughs) And tells Jack on the way out to mind his bowels, which is a great throwaway line. Yeah, I do love that. (laughs) Well, Stephen has had, O'Brien tells us, this sense of hurried urgency ever since he had that chat with Sir Joseph, you know, in in the woods there. And the Ringle fulfills this urgency beyond his hopes. O'Brien writes that she moves with a curious fidgeting motion like a horse held in, dancing on his toes, eager to be off. She's flying even faster when Stephen comes back up on deck later. And Reed, Bondin, and two Shelmerstonians, Mold and Baggers, the two most successful smugglers, well-respected, well-versed in sailing topsail schooners, are discussing whether to add a weather studding sail. Now, I I kind of alluded to this just a minute ago, Ian, that they're not sailing with Captain Aubrey because they need the money. They've, They've made and preserved their futures. They're here because of their wives' reaction, as I mentioned, to this recent (laughs) Debian, as Brian writes, revelation, perhaps illusory, that polygamy is, quote, not allowed and indeed recommended to Sethians here. And and as I said, that their wives' reaction now makes the ship of war seem like a haven of peace. So... Well, it's, uh, I, I don't think it's going to be peaceful for many of the men in this, uh, this situation here. The, the, the Sethians themselves maybe are a bit prone to self-deception, you know, the, the, this polygamy thing. What, you, you think that having lots of wives is going to free you from the burden of jealousy and unfaithfulness? I'm, I'm not so sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It sounds a little bit more like the patriarchy on steroids to me. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> Well, the, the sea gets up, and we know that Ringle is quite a skittish kind of a craft, and Stephen is thrown up against a carronade. His shipmates help him up, and they fasten him to a stanchion so that he can stand there in the dark and in the cold and enjoy the ship's speed. And it's, he has to be tied, as they say, to this here stanchion. And the text goes on. And so, fast to that there stanchion, he stood hour after hour, And while one part of his being lived in this great gushing stream of air with the dead white bow wave flying out, flung wide on his right hand and the black pale flecked sea racing close below him, the whole in a vast and all-embracing medley of sound, the rest of him peered into the immediate future with all the acuity and concentration that he could bring to bear. It's, again, it's really great writing. Mm -hmm. And like so often, really great first-person descriptive writing about the situation um, aboard ship there. He reaches to Stephen for his pouch of coca leaves and stops himself. Another little 
get thee behind me moment here. But he couches it in terms of thinking, I'm going to save the coca leaves for a more exigent, a more pressing crisis. But he doubts his decision. He says, I fear it may be superstition, the passionate desire to succeed, overwhelming reason entirely, leaving mere sophistry behind. And reason being absolutely Stephen's kind of intellectual guiding star, him doubting that says to us, I think, that all this information from Blaine about the court case and the Duke of Hubbock style has clearly got Stephen rattled. Now, Mike, I, I just want to track back to the beginning of this paragraph or two here. This here and that there. We, we had it all the way through the canon. We, I went into the, the text lookup. I just looked for the phrase this here, and it's all the way through the text, always in dialogue, often lighthearted dialogue attributed to the lower class members, the uneducated members of the crew. And it's, I think, one of O'Brien's favorite ways of coloring the speech of uneducated people, but in a, in a positive and a lighthearted way. There's a really nice article about it that we'll, we'll put out on our socials when we get around to it that talks about the, this here and that there emphasis being a very, very common pattern in different kinds of English for people who are relatively uneducated or what you might call lower in socioeconomic class. According to Merriam-Webster, no less, the use of here and there for emphasis following a demonstrative adjective, which is what we're talking about, is a characteristic of dialectical and uneducated speech. It does not occur in writing except when such speech is being recorded, evoked, or imitated. And I think evoking and imitating is exactly what O'Brien's doing for us here so really, really well. It was a fascinating article, Aaron. I, I love that you found that. And I loved how it said that in some languages, it actually makes sense because you don't have the same connotations, this and that, as, as you do in English. So I grew up with people around me speaking English who came from Pennsylvania Dutch or Pennsylvania oh, German, okay. yeah, where yeah. that actually makes some sense. So I was used yeah. to hearing that. Fascinatingly, I moved then to eastern North Carolina, which was also inundated with this here and that there. But their English antecedents didn't have that Pennsylvania Dutch connection. So I've, I've, I've gotten to live in both of these worlds. <laughs> Fantastic. Anyway, a, a lovely little colorful moment of dialogue there. Reed finally talks Stephen into disentangling himself from that there stanchion and coming below to eat something. Uh, and over dinner, Reed says there's a chance that they could run straight up and into the London River with never a check along the way. And if you look at the voice that they're making on a map, it kind of does a, a big U-turn around the foreland, around the, the, the kind of corner of Kent. And that Why? means that you've got to, to, to make the passage quickly. You've got to exactly catch the tides at the various kind of tidal gates that go around the big headlands. And Reed thinks he's on for a hot passage here and whatever existential crisis is going on in Stephen's bosom um, Reed spots the chance I think here to wipe a few of the people's eye with his passage making so uh, he also thinks that it would delight the captain who thinks the world of the Ringle and Stephen's you know, he's kind of okay with it he says yeah that sounds great that's very fine well Stephen wakes in the morning to the clink of china and the smell of breakfast and Vaggers tells him that they may just catch their tide. The thing you were just talking about, Ian, that, hey, this is looking good here. Reed's on the deck looking at all the convoy ships windbound in the downs. So they're going in, but there's a lot of them trying to go out here. And later, Reed tells Stephen the wind is working for them heading into London, but not for all the poor souls, the hundreds of ships praying to get out. 
And Stephen, in, in a little theological moment, says, well, you know, to read, it's not the number praying, but the intensity and the quality of the prayer offered. And uh, the text says, this is Stephen's words, purely mercantile considerations cannot expect to receive much notice in heaven. So for all, <laughs> all of you prosperity gospel fans, <laughs> Stephen, Stephen would have something to say about that. But, yeah, Reed, Reed says, I'm sure you are right, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Reed rehearses the names of the guardian men of war waiting to get out, O'Brien writes, unconsciously using a tone of voice more usual at the altar. So I I love this reverential (laughs) moment for Reed with the guardian men of war. He's like, you know, Lord, please let these guys get out. We need them. Oh, it's great. This this is a, a portentous piece of geography as well. We've been to the Downs, this anchorage off the Goodwin Sands near to Deal in Kent, only a couple of times, most significantly back in Post Captain, when there was all the intrigue with Jack and Stephen and Diana and the duel and the falling out. So I, I think that's kind of auspicious. I think we're meant to notice that. Yeah, yeah. So after dinner, Reed tells Stephen that they're now within the estuary of the Thames. So they're like 60% of the way around their big U-shape voyage here. By the time they get to the Nore, which is one of the big headlands at the entrance to the Thames, they can even tell Stephen that they've caught their tide as Mould, who's their best Thames pilot, takes them through. Mould says he denigrates Greenwich as they go past Greenwich. A beautiful place, obviously site of all of the, the, the old naval college, all these beautiful Regency buildings there would have been visible on the shore at Greenwich just as they are today. Mould's not having any of it. He says they take money from sailors, and uh, Stephen replies with a line from the Canterbury Tales, and Mould goes a bit further and refers to shrews in Greenwich and picks that up as a reason to complain about his wife. He talks about her as her having an ignorant, illiberal, worldly rejection of the plurality of wives, the polygamy thing that we were just talking about, citing all these biblical references all the way back to Abraham and Solomon and Gideon. And uh, the, the rant is finally cut short when a small barge, skipped by an idiot boy, cuts in front of them and disaster nearly ensues they finally get into the pool of london they anchor just before supper reads looks at his watch and laughs out loud i think he's had a good time with the uh with the record-breaking passage here well stephen heads ashore after he takes a few minutes and celebrates this wonderful passage with reed and but he finds that his attorney lawrence was certainly not expecting him this quickly and is out of town so stephen tells the clerk that you know, they can find him tomorrow at the Graves or his club. And the clerk tells Stephen, well, the goods have been looked after. So I think we've got a little tip here that Stephen's gold has been moved, as, as Wayne oh, kind of set up for Stephen to do. Always a good idea. And Stephen, meanwhile, heads for the, for the Grapes. He has a good breakfast the next morning with Sarah and Emily, having learned the night before, talking to Mrs. Broad about how happy they are there. So we're glad to see them doing well. And later that day, he sees Mr. Hinckley, Reverend Hinksey, at the Pianoforte warehouse and then goes to dine with him at Black's. I wonder what Jack Aubrey would have to say about Stephen Maturin having a little cheeky dinner with with Parson Hinksey here. I take a a dim view on behalf of Jack. There you go. Right. Jack's perceived rival here. Well, you know, we, we kind of leave that behind and, and we join Lawrence so very glad to see Stephen and so happy that he's taken, you know, Lawrence's advice, Pratt's advice in this, what he calls 
most disagreeable and potentially dangerous situation he's ever known. He says there have been violent, murderous disagreements between the criminals the Duke has employed. Lawrence tells him that Pratt has had all the gold packed into cases marked double refined platina and stored at a lead, brass, and copper warehouse on the Thames until Stephen can carry it away. So I, I thought it was just kind of interesting. I thought, platina? Platina? Little silver? You know, ah, okay, back then this was considered a nuisance while mining for gold. Today, platinum oh. wouldn't be the necessarily the smartest thing to mark on boxes you're trying to hide. <laughs> no, no, not if anybody's heard anything about catalytic converters. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Depending on where the world's uncertainty index is, you know, yeah. platinum is uh, oftentimes more uh, more valuable than gold. <laughs> well, all, all of these uh, chests of double refined platinum are finally loaded aboard the Ringle the next day. The hands here are old surprises, old Chelmstonians, and they are used to the idea of storing unique cargo for the Doctor. We've had in the past, what have we had? We've had giant squids. We've had odd, learned, and scientific and political tasks done for the government. But they are a bit surprised by the bruisers and the former Bow Street runners that show up to help to load all of this treasure, obviously with the help of Pratt here. They stow it with an eye for the performance of the ringle. They stow it so that it brings the clipper, as they say, a trifle by the stern, and they're preparing to cast off. As they do this, they find that mold is missing, and Bondon sends to get him. So he sent to a place on a street aptly named Bedmaid Lane. Right. <laughs> and the message goes, you should tell him that the barkey awaits his pleasure. And one of his shipmates remarks, that old mold, he can't leave it alone. And we finally get mold coming back on board here, glum, penniless, and anxious about the possible outcome of his repeated joys. Yeah, so who's who's deceiving themselves now with their short-term pleasures, hey? Well, Mike, we, we, we've had breakfast and we've had pleasures of a different kind for mold. I, th- I think it's a good time to give our listeners a choice and say, yeah, step away for a moment, take a short break, take whatever refreshment your body needs, and we'll be right back with you. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. We hope you're refreshed as we rejoin the Ringle sailing away here. And Reed brings his logbook written fair with the exact minute that they landed at the pool to Stephen. And he asked Stephen to please sign it in the margin. He says, with all the degrees you can think of and FRS as well. <laughs> Otherwise, he says, no one is ever going to believe him. So apparently they've made just amazing time here. And Reed realizes it won't be the same going back but says that being by the stern half a strike is a comfort. And Stephen asks why. And Reed says, well, it's going to help them to beat to windward as they join the others waiting to get out. So a little nautical change here for our friends. Yeah, this is is a very racing line they're taking, changing their trim, moving the center of lateral resistance forward. It's a smart move. Anyhow, this racing trim is going to have to wait because for a whole week as they wait there, every day promises a change of wind to one that could be at least a little bit favorable, but it never comes. Stephen takes a deal boat ashore, one that's been selling supplies at famine prices to the uh, windbound ships, 
He considers taking a coach. He considers posting down to Barham, but he decides that the enterprise he thinks must be carried off in one smooth stroke, arousing no suspicion or curiosity. And we get a little musical token here. He steps ashore. Um, he's in a music shop and he picks up a copy of Haydn's Symphonie Funèbre, Funeral Symphony, and rides back to deal with the seller who's headed that way. So Mike, we haven't had a, a musical reference to dig into for a while. So forgive me if we do, I think here. First of all, I'm so happy that we've got a Haydn reference. I love me a bit of Haydn. Of all of the congenial, companionable chamber music ever written that Jack and Stephen could have enjoyed playing together, for sure Haydn wrote a ton of it and it's great. Haydn's musical personality is this kind of warm, cheerful, outgoing, thoughtful guy. Any string chamber music player, I think, would be a little bit ticked off if they're reading along the Aubrey Matron books at how little mention Haydn has got so far, given all of the Mozart and Locatelli and Boccherini and all the other ones. Anyhow, the Funeral Symphony is an interesting choice if you're going to make a Haydn reference here. Now, it's number 44 out of Haydn's 106 symphony, so it's mid-career, and it's a, it's not his last. It wasn't like a valedictory symphony like you know, Mahler 9, for example. To be honest, although it's in the minor key, it's not exactly very funereal. Let's have a little listen for a few seconds to part of the slow movement, which is the one that you'd expect to be kind of funeral-ish, and hear how it goes. It's nice, but I don't think it sounds like music to accompany existential angst and and dread or personal catastrophe. I think it's quiet and gentle and contemplative. It is said that Haydn requested or asked for this particular piece to be played at his funeral, although I don't think we've got any strong evidence that he did so or that it was even actually played. There are contemporary pieces that are much more doom-laden and dramatic and even tragic. In Haydn's work, listen to the opening of the creation, the oratorio, probably Haydn's masterpiece. Much more dramatic and dark. Um, listen to the funeral march of Beethoven's Third Symphony, composed only 20 years later. Absolute existential despair. Wonderful, wonderful writing. Really, truly a funeral march. Even listen to the introitus from Mozart's Requiem written around the same time as Haydn's London Symphony, much more like uh, an expression of grief and what the piece that was actually played at the memorial service for Mozart himself. So the Haydn reference is a nice one. If we go by the character of the music, then this particular symphony doesn't actually suggest that Stephen was in the depths of grief or existential crisis. There's another interesting point here, Mike, about his his transformed ability to read the score and hear it for himself. But we'll come back to that when we get later on in the text. Yeah, so back aboard, as you say, Ian, Stephen returns to his coca leaves. And, mm. and it's not that he's got a new crisis that's more pressing. It's kind of due to his mental distress. He's thinking about all the howling and shrieking and moaning of the wind day after day. And on the first day, he finds that these leaves allow him as he says, a poor and hesitant reader of orchestral music 
to almost hear the entire band playing his first run through the script pages. The leaves clarify his mind, diminish his anxiety, and largely do away with sleep and hunger. And then the text says, yet on the third day, he was aware of the impression that they were doing these things not to Stephen Matron, but to a somewhat inferior, apathetic, uninterested man who, though cleverer in some ways, thought Haydn of no great consequence. And this this causes Stephen to pause. And I love how Stephen's still introspective here. He wonders, you know, maybe I'm overindulging. But then again, maybe it's the constant pitching of the ship that's causing my lack of joy. Well, whatever it is, how very dare he. Haydn of no consequence, boo, the, the back of my hand to this <laughs> other this other matcherin. So being able to read a score and hear it in your head is it's 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 easy enough if you know how to read a score and you've heard the piece before but to read a score having never heard it before and play it back in your head is is quite something lots of performers would love to be able to do this i i think most people would say that it's got to be somebody with perfect pitch if you've got the gift of as it's called perfect pitch that is to say uh being able to associate a pitch directly with its note name and hear it and sing it if you've got perfect pitch then you can probably do this if it's a simple score Um, If not, then you might tell a lot about the texture and the structure, but you probably won't be able to, as you might say, hear it in your head. So I think that if you could suddenly give yourself perfect pitch by chewing a few coca leaves, then uh, all all those rock musicians in rehab would be joined by a few conductors and classical music singers. So good good for Stephen, but I'm not buying it. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what all my colleagues were doing on the glass of the Xerox machine in the 80s. Working, oh, working, well, working. Well, yeah, they just wanted to be able to, to interpret Haydn scores in their heads, of course. That's it. <laughs> Reed wakes Stephen up and tells him the glass has risen. So there's, there's some real hope here. And several ships have moved into position. One Hoy tries to get out, loses sails that is driven helplessly back, you know, kind of running through the hawsers of, of all the ships in the line here. Well, Bondin comes down in the afternoon saying that back in the day before they became what he calls reformed characters, <laughs> Mold and Vaggers got out of a similar situation here clearing the downs at the Hammer and Anvil in a ship that was not as weatherly as the Ringle. So we assume they were probably being chased by a revenue cutter or something here. And when the weather gauge turns half a point in their favor, the way that, that you know, Bondin had described it, Reed calls for him. And he asks them if they can pilot the tender through the passage. They say, well, if everybody can look sharp at, and they can beat the end, which starts in half an hour, they think they can do it. Well, the Ringles do look sharp and they're ready, as they say, to show the lovers in the downs how seamen of the better sort dealt with situations of this kind. Huh. And as they come closer, yeah, they see what gives this show its name. You know, a roller breaks on the right side, sending up a column of water, the hammer. And at low tide, with a falling wind, this is flung, this column is flung across a 20-yard channel falling on the other side, the anvil here. And just after that, there's a dogleg that absolutely has to be judged to the yard. So, you know, everybody's tense. They're navigating the wrinkle here. And they stay to perfection, clear the narrows and the downs. And the text says, and now... For as craft as weatherly as the ringle with plenty of sea room, it was only a matter of a dozen long reaches for home. Excellent work. A little round of applause there for the seamanship aboard the ringle. And being trimmed by the stern turns out that was a great move. Now, 
scene switches rapidly then to Stephen making it to the dining room in Barham. Stephen walks into the dining room, now fully recognizable as himself, and all bad thoughts about Haydn uh, banished because he's uh, managed to wind down his coca leaf doses. Clarissa is shocked, surprised to see him, offers him food, tells him that all the silver that she has on display on the table is to celebrate the day that she had left New South Wales, which is a little bit ironic because he's about to say, "Uh, uh, uh, you're not as safe as you thought you were. He takes a glass of wine to celebrate and then says, you need to pack and leave within the hour. Now, this all starts to take shape. Bridget and Padine run in with Padine trying to say chaise as Bridget cries out, horses in English. And they see Stephen and they fall silent. And that's a, that's a nice moment. A little connection wow. here that she's got a connection not only with Padine, but that she recognizes her father. Padine takes Bridget over to Stephen and she says in Irish, God and Mary and Patrick be with you, my father, holding up her face to be kissed. And Stephen says, we're all going to Spain, the joy and the delight. And she's been eating this pudding, a quaking pudding, and offers a piece to Stephen, which is very, very sweet again. By the way, quaking pudding, it's delicious. It's a bit like a custard tart without the, without the crust. Um, there's a great recipe for quaking pudding in Lobscouse and Spotted Dog, if you're of a mind to try and recreate this moment here. Now, Stephen thinks for a moment about just how much he values Clarissa as she finishes what she's eating, which is a boiled egg. She never asks a question. He really appreciates that about her. She's ready to leave everything at a moment's notice and had probably understood the essentials of the situation as soon as their eyes met. Bridget, on the other hand, leaves him astonished at an enchanted loss with all of this fabulous progress that she's made. He had hoped and prayed. He had lit candles to saints for some sign of perceptible progress. And here she is all at once living an outward life. And Mike, it's beautiful. It's very touching. Not 100% with it, to be honest. We'll talk about that later. Right. But isn't it great? Isn't it great? that In this moment of despair and upheaval, he can see that she's got the lights on, as you might say, with the inner communication with other people. Yeah. Well, Bridget asks him in Irish if he'd like to be shown the chase in four. And Stephen says, well, you know, it's still warm where he just rode up in it and that they'll all be leaving in it within the hour. And she's delighted. She asks if she and Padine can sit on the little seat high up behind and, you know, exclaims her happiness at the whole situation. Clarissa, you know, pokes her head back in, asks one question about the weather in the Spain and is is off packing. Stephen is seeing to the servants' wages and, you know, setting that up to talk to Mrs. Aubrey going forward. And with Padine and Bridget up and behind, they take off. And Stephen, sitting alone with Clarissa in the coach, is asking if she'd like him to explain the situation. And she says, you bet. She and Padine have been betrayed, Right. Ah, and she says, you know, she realizes this because people have been watching them. They've been talking in the village here. Ah, well, Stephen says he's convinced that their pardons are going to come through. But for right this minute, they have to get out of Stephen's enemy's reach. And he says he also would like to have Bridget under Dr. Lair's care, but says the change in her is one usually associated with miracles alone, as, as you noted, Ian. Yeah, yeah very yeah. miraculous, this change here. And Clarissa says that nothing, you know, has ever given her more happiness than watching Bridget open like a flower, first in Irish and then in English. Mm. Now, Stephen says he's sorry that the Spanish she'll be learning when they go to Spain won't be Catalan. 
because mm-hmm. they'll be staying at a Benedictine house in a villa with his, you know, his aunt is the abbess there. And, and I, I, I love, we, we had a little reported speech of an Aubreyism when he's saying, well, she won't be learning Spanish. He says, but as Captain Aubrey often says, you cannot both have a stitch in time and eat it. So, <laughs> so, you know, we couldn't, even though Jack's not here, we could always, always throw in an Aubreyism here. And Stephen's telling her that a number of the pensioners there are English of old Catholic families or Irish, and he hopes that Padine will stay with them as their servant and, as he says, a source of springing life for Bradine. Hmm. Now, Clarissa's life, he says, is going to be dull there but safe, and she says that's all she can ask for. Yeah. Wow. It's great. It's great that he can do this for them. Just in case we had forgotten... There's another relationship uh, at issue here, and that's the relationship between Jack and Sophie. And I'm really, really struck by this next paragraph. This is a real big moment for me. They get close to Ashgrove Cottage, and Clarissa asks if they'll have time to take leave of Mrs. Aubrey. And she says she doesn't want their leaving without a word to look like a low-minded resentment. And Stephen says, well, we have to keep going. There's not a moment to lose, as we keep saying. And he repeats resentment with a bit of a questioning tone like what's going on here and clarissa tells about this episode when she had invited mrs aubrey who had written to her with news about clarissa's pension from captain aubrey and had asked if she might call clarissa had planned a dinner inviting dr hamish and mr hinksy yeah him uh, and she clarissa had worn her best outfit the crimson silk that the captain gave her for her wedding dress what is it? Three books ago now. Right. When Mrs. Aubrey arrived, she too was in a dress of the very same material. And Clarissa is sure that Mrs. Aubrey believed that the captain had given it to Clarissa for services rendered. And to use her phrase, that she'd come off with the fag end of his mistress's leavings. Mm. And here we go. This is the heart of the jealousy, the problem that lies now between Jack and Sophie. And it's a, a real heart sink moment for me. You know, Sophie's always, I thought, been able to see past. She's always been able to be the kind of steadfast one in the relationship. And she's also the one who's got the green eyes descending here. No, not entirely without reason. Right. But both of them, Jack and Sophie, are, are, are short of insight here. They're both deceiving themselves a little bit, I think. I love, though, the way that O'Brien had planted this scarlet silk for us a long time ago and had kept it in our consciousness in little drips all the way through the last couple of books. And this is just one of those head-shaking, ay, ay, ay moments for me. Yeah, I couldn't couldn't agree with you more, Ian. I mean, brilliantly done there. And ay, ay, ay. Yeah, because it is, it's the stories we tell ourselves that really, really do us in here. Well, then... We have another interesting thing, and, and we've talked about this. I'm sure we'll talk about it at the end of the chapter. That you know, they they now can see the sea from the coach, and Bridget is thrilled. You know, seeing it, she's thrilled when they get there. She runs into the water, grabs some seaweed, runs over to Bond, and offers her hand, and says, "How do you do, sir?" So, I mean, this is like complete night and day difference from this, you know, this little girl on the spectrum that we saw not too very yeah. long ago. 
And the boat's crew welcomed her with infinite benevolence, it's written. And they seat her right up front on a folded jersey. Reed welcomes Mrs. Oak. So we've got some old shipmates back together again here. And on the ringle, you know, as they're as they're headed out, Stephen watches Bridget explore the entire ship. She climbs the four cross trees hanging onto Mold's neck and is is restrained from her wildest successes by Padine and the seamen. But she's an ideal traveler. She doesn't mind getting wet. She's not afraid of anything. When she's finally persuaded to come below that first day, she eats two bites and falls fast asleep. <laughs> it's great. Well, having had a slow start to the journey, to begin with, things are picking up now for the Ringle. Reed tells Stephen that they're making 10 knots, even with just a little sail up, and 10 knots is pretty respectable. Um, He had wanted to crack on, but the crew, in quotes here, felt that the barky should sail sweet, this being the little maid's first trip. And he's pretty certain that actually cracking on wouldn't bother her a bit. Now, Stephen and Clarissa and Bridget all are sound asleep until well after the sun is up. And Reed reports to them that the Commodore ship had exchanged signals with the offshore squadron on Thursday morning, sailing southwest. So we're not too far behind. They realise that they've got no milk for Bridget, which is apparently what kids eat for breakfast. So they feed her with skilly gilly, thin oatmeal with sugar and butter and... Bridget, who's in love with everything about being aboard ship and life aboard ship, is absolutely in love with this, says it's the best dish that she's ever had and skips around the ship singing about it until dinner when she had the Thursday dish traditionally, which is salt pork and dried peas, thankfully swerving her allotment of beer, at least for the time (laughs) being. Bridget really, really loves the ship. Stephen shows her porpoises and petrels. And Slade and the Shelmastonians are really in love with her as well. He says, she was born with sea legs. And Bridget says, I'll never go ashore again. Mm. Which, yeah, kind of sends us like, oh, it's Sarah and Emily. She's back on the yeah. ship She's with her yeah. dad. Everything's well. And I'm thinking, gosh, this is great. <laughs> well, Stephen finds Padine fishing for mackerel one morning long before dawn. The ship has lingered closer to the shore of Spain because of this great fishing. And Stephen notes that Padine appears not to have gone to bed. And Padine says he started thinking of the informer that had betrayed him and Mrs. Oakes. And then he kind of lost all ability to go back to sleep when he thought about this possibility of going back to Botany Bay. And in a lightning flash, they see the coast of Spain right there. And Stephen tells him once he sets foot in that country, no one can send him back. And that within a year, Stephen will have his pardon. He's, again, sure of this as he tried to convince Clarissa here. And he asks Padine if he will look after Bridget and Mrs. Oates at this convent that they're headed Mm. to, saying that if he looks after them faithfully for a year and a day, Stephen will give him a small farm he owns in Munster with 17 Irish acres, a house, cows, an ass, pigs, two hives of bees, and the right to cut turf on the bog. And having told him this, he asks Padine if he's content. And Padine says that, yes, he is content, that he would look after Bradine for a thousand years and a day for nothing at all. But he would love some land. And, oh, Ian, yeah, this is my heart is melting here, right? Oh, uh, it, it's a lovely moment. It's a lovely moment for Padine because he's, with, with all of this psychodrama and expectations and self-deception amongst everybody else, he has no expectations of life here. 
He's just trying to make his way. He's in no way a jealous person. And it's great that we get this moment of generosity for him in amongst all of the gloom and disaster that's happening to all the other adult characters here. Uh, but he, he talks in this really charming way about his grandfather who'd been a smallholder. They talk about the joys of farming until finally day breaks and Bondon calls all hands. They run aft, beating on the hatches. This is not one of those good all hands calls. There's a problem because half a mile astern, there's a long, low, three-masted black lugger, heavily armed, heavily manned, making sail to catch up with the ringle. Ooh. And Stephen can hear the hands talking. This, we learn, is a French privateer, the Marie Paul, a fast ship. Revenue cutters haven't been able to catch her. Her master, Francois, is known to be, in the words of the text, a right bastard. He spares no one, and he has a nine-pound chaser in the bows that they serve most uncommon well, and everybody's looking grave. So, Stephen looks around. There's Cape Vares running north into the sea a short mile ahead. It looks like they're not going to be able to clear the Cape without going about. And if they do, they will then be boarded by the lugger coming up fast, this lugger filled with men. The Ringle's making 10 knots, so she must either run into the Cape and go aground in four minutes or go about and fall into the clutches of this privateer. As the minutes pass... Stephen realises here just what his fortune lying below means to him, to his daughter, and to a thousand aspects of his life. And, Mike, we've had, I think last week, a little mention from Stephen of how his life has changed, sometimes because and sometimes despite of this, this money. He says he can't imagine here that it would mean so much to him or that he would prize it so much. So, straight away, Mike, our heart is beating, you know, once again black privateer coming out of the murk where, where are we going to end up here you know it, it is i'm just like oh no oh no i was so happy well Stephen doesn't know quite what to think you know in his situation as you said ian it's it's impossible and he looks at the men at the helm and, and reed who's got his back to him you know seems to feel Stephen's look and turns around and glances back at Stephen. and the text says the young man's expression had something of that happy wildness Stephen had often seen in Jack Aubrey at times of crisis. And smiling, he called, stand by, doctor, watch out, adding some words to Slade about a biscuit. Huh. Stephen, I think, doesn't know what to think here. He watches Weed and Bondin. They've got their hands on a triple-turned rope and the tiller, and they ease the helm a lee, and still more a lee. The Texas Stephen saw the dreadful shore of the Cape now so close, racing away to the left. He saw its seaward ends appear, just clear of their larboard bow, at 10 yards perhaps. He heard young Reed cry, toss it hard. Slade flung the biscuit, hit the rock, and in a roar of laughter, they were passed round into the open sea. Oh. oh. <laughs> Man, here, here's Reed. You know, I, I'm just seeing this young Commodore Aubrey here. You yeah. know, this guy who wanted to please Jack with the Ringle sailing quality, and now exhibiting so much of what he's learned from Jack. This cunning, this expression of wild happiness. And I have to admit that I always conflate in my mind Reed and Mr. Blakeney in Master and Commander the movie. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. One of the guys that I just love so much. So you know, this is just a wonderful moment for me. Oh, it's great. And again, this is another one of those moments that I've got in my memory 
and I couldn't have told you which of the books it belonged in, but I was super happy to come across it. You, know, you can see it coming a couple of paragraphs ahead. It's a really great moment. Now, the lugger that's been chasing them, unable to weather the cape, fires one ineffectual gun and tacks herself, thereby losing her prize. She chased them for hours, but by noon, she was hulled down in the east, hopelessly outsailed. The crew aboard the Ringle was in good humour, constantly reminding each other that they had weathered old Cape Varas within biscuit toss. <laughs> and soon after that, they opened up the port of Coruña, also known as the Groin, which was one of their kind of waypoints on the way to their rendezvous with the surprise. Now, I... I, I love this moment and also like the fact that it was nicely foreshadowed for us. The little smart windward sailing bit that they had done to get themselves out of the downs was a nice little trailer for the, for the skill and the sailing quality that was going to help them get out of this particular scrape. Now, Mold, who is obviously feeling on a bit of a high here, brings Stephen into his confidence and says, I know a dead honest party ashore here in Corona who can land the cargo discreetly because this is where they used to come for uncustomed brandy. And Stephen says, well, this time I mean to land all of the treasure legally, but thank you in any case, he says to Mould for your, for your offer. And he and Reed go and speak with the port authorities. They declare the treasure. He's going to deposit it in the bank of the Holy Ghost and Commerce, who had shipped it to him originally. Um, it's minted in English guineas, so it's exempt from duty and uh, he's going to help it on its way by parceling up two nice fat bags of gold here to pay for a berth against the key and to be distributed to the trustworthy and able-bodied men who are going to carry these chests while Stephen goes to greet the governor. So a, a little bit of benign corruption, but nothing too shady here as Stephen aims to get the treasure ashore. Yeah, and Stephen, they tell Stephen, oh no, the governor will be hate that he missed you, he's out of town. But Stephen says, well, how about Don Patricio and his men? And and they go, oh yes, you know, the, the colonel's here. So Stephen's cousin, the colonel, Don Patricio, greets Stephen in the next scene. Stephen asks if he's well and happy, kindly used by fortune. And Don Patricio responds with a body joke from Hamlet. Faith, her privates me. But never let a soldier complain. Pray carry on. And we'll get back to that. I'll turn that over to you in a second here, Ian. Stephen tells him who he's brought with them, you know, and that, you know, all about the story about the, the girls spending time with his aunt and says that he has to leave immediately, but doesn't want them to go off to a villa alone. He said, but if you could lend me even a half a dozen of your troopers and an officer, you would oblige me extremely. And I would be so much happier sailing away. Well, Ian, Faith, her privates, me? Oh, this is great. Kudos to you, Mike. You, you, you did the digging on this. I, I love this reference. I'd sort of breezed past it every other time that I'd read it. So this is actually a, a more or less quote from Hamlet. Act two, scene two. Hamlet is trying to figure out who Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are and asks them how they're doing. And Rosencrantz says... On Fortune's cap, we are not the very button. And therefore, they're not overly happy. And Hamlet teasingly says, nor the soles of her feet. And Rosencrantz says, no. And Hamlet extends the metaphor a bit, saying that if they're not the top or the bottom, then they must be at the very middle of her. And Guildenstern says, faith, her privates we. And that's a, that's a play on words, right? They are her privates, her private soldiers, but also um, they are mm, her secret parts. 
and therefore making the allusion to fortune, good luck as a uh, as a as a strumpet. And there are some funny video explanations that we could share on social media later on as well. So what he's really saying is, Faith, I am her, her either low-ranking foot soldier or I am adjacent to her, to her private part. So he's trying to say, yeah, not so great, mustn't grumble, but he's not English, so he can't say mustn't grumble. He's got to find some other funny way. It's a really great illusion. Great job digging it out. Kudos to O'Brien for that nice connection there to Hamlet. So, besides being a little bit downbeat about his fortunes, Mike, how how is the colonel and is he going to be able to help us out here? Well, you know, the Texas, the colonel obliged him extremely, but no one looking at Stephen's face as he stood in the Ringles' bows, watching eight horses draw a lumbering great coach up the hill behind Corona with a cavalry escort before and behind and two hands waving white handkerchiefs, waving and waving until they were lost in the distance, would have thought that he looked oh so much happier. Oh, I, oh Ian, this is, this is it's kind of a sad place, but, you know, I'm thinking end of chapter, but, it, but it's not, is it? No, it's not. There's, there's one more thing. Uh, Reed, in an embarrassed and compassionate voice, seeing the disconsolate look on Stephen's face, says... They're about to cast off. But he reminds Stephen that you haven't told us the rendezvous and the Commodore's not here. So where's our next rendezvous? And, uh, there's this moment of, <gasps> you know, catching your throat. Stephen can't remember. Did I not? Asked Stephen. He pondered and pondered again. Jesus, Mary and Joseph, he murmured. I've forgotten its name. The word is on the top back edge of my mind. It eludes me petrels nest there perhaps puffins bats a vast great windy cave somewhere out in the sea islands i have it the burlings the burlings it is on my soul (laughs) thank heavens for stephen's memory of his friendly chat with his particular friend captain aubrey thank heavens for the burlings ah wow mike What 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 a way to end the chapter and what a chapter yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm glad we didn't leave Stephen, you know, sadly watching them. I'm glad Reed picked him back up again here. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, Stephen decisively makes his getaway with no questions asked from Jack. You know, Jack is helping him. The surprises who love him there. We've got this miraculous progress for Bridget here, which, you know, has me scratching my head just a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm in two minds about this. That on the one hand, it's very happy and it's a great release for Stephen and it's a great kind of light tone, a happy tone in a chapter that's full of all this other interpersonal kind of doom and disaster. So on the one hand, I really like it and, and I'm punching the air that Bridget is not only connected to the world but also loves to be at sea. But on the other hand, I'm very slightly not quite there with it. I, it. It seems a little bit miraculous, a little bit magical. All of the other instances of children aboard a ship have been charming and relatable and, you know, realistic sounding. Yeah, young George, first time on the deck of a frigate, needing to go. Um, Sarah and Emily having their protests sit in in the main top. But Bridget's first voyage just seems to be in this kind of golden halo. And maybe that's how it was meant to be. But maybe there would have been more to be had. I, I don't think Stephen's done any actual parenting <laughs> in in this moment. And what you know, Sarah and Emily got to travel the world with him. 
Bridget gets put ashore in a villa, having just said she wants to spend her life aboard a ship, and you right. okay, there you go. You're right. off to the con- you're off to the convent, you know. Right. You're, 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 the flower of your daughter is opened up. You finally have her back. You're, you're going to be looking for her mother at some point. Well, head you to Spain. See you bye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I, I love the potentially happily ever after ending for Padine, you know, yeah. with his heart always as big as all outdoors. You know, we had that bit of jeopardy with the French privateer. And, and and I love, you know, Reed as a young Jack getting him, you know, getting them out of it with help from Bondin and the smugglers. And there was so much writing in this yeah. chapter, the scenery, yeah. dialogues, characters, definitely, you know, O'Brien doing what he does well. We, you know, we couldn't obviously put it all in here. It's fabulous. Yeah. And, and in amongst even so in amongst the beautiful writing and in amongst the high notes for Padine and for Brigid we've still got this terrible tug of jealousy particularly between Jack and Sophie Sophie we heard about secondhand we haven't even really got to hear what she makes of this discovery about the scarlet silk we really need Jack to be at his best given some of the potential tensions brewing among the officers in his squadron all of that seems to have been kind of sailed past quite nicely in this chapter, but you've got to wonder what's coming up there. And, you know, anytime anything is going too smoothly in these kind of books, Mike, we, we, we have to wonder. So so maybe this, this idea of self-deception even extends to us. Maybe we're kidding ourselves if we think it's all going to be okay. Yeah. As always, I think we find ourselves wondering what comes next. Yeah. And I suspect there's only one way to find out. Ian, what do you say next week to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? With all my heart. But he remembers there's a nearby apothecary. The, the, I knew what I was going to do. Now. There you go, Sam. It's <laughs> a record. It oh my gosh! He remembers three minutes a... and eighteen seconds. Apothecary, <laughs> <laughs> apothecary, apothecary. <laughs> Second time's the charm. <laughs>